Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker, your host, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I said in JSIP 145 that I would get my friend and partner of previous Just Checking In podcast, Jordan Chassiak Pratt, Ollie Fisher on the podcast eventually. Well, the time has come and that episode for Ollie is this one. Ollie is the co-owner and editor-in-chief of Sempre Milan, a football platform dedicated to providing the best news, features and match English language coverage of Serie A football team AC Milan. The platform formed in January 2016 and in this episode we discuss Ollie's professional journey, breaking into football journalism, founding Sempre Milan alongside his co-founder Joao Mario and Isaac, growing it into the platform it is today, having it become his full-time hustle, not just his side hustle and career, and the impact as well that COVID-19 had on the platform before it thankfully recovered. For Ollie's mental health, we talk about the positives he's had in his life, having a supportive nuclear family and a great network of friends and a supportive partner. We also discuss his move to London and losing his Friday night routine with his group of school friends and that regular brotherhood connection, as well as his journey of education on mental health through his partner and previous guest Jordan experiencing her mental health difficulties. And you can go and listen back to that episode if you want to find out more about what Jordan went through as well. So this is how my check-in with Ollie Fisher, went. Ollie Fisher, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. I told you I'd get you on the pod eventually, and despite some calendar jiggery-pokery, my persistence has paid off. So how are you, mate? I'm not going to ask you about town because you lost last night, and I'm still a little bit pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah, glad we're not talking about town. That's all I'll say, but I did manage to miss <laughs> the entire game due to being at a gig, so every cloud has a silver lining and all that. But yeah finally got wi-fi running in the new flat so i feel like a new man i feel like i've had a limb reattached so that is happy days <laughs> and it's a saturday so it could be worse couldn't it excellent mate i think i'm getting close to more than double digit town guests on the pod now so i'm, I'm definitely very proud of that and i always love doing these pods with guests because i end up obviously seeing you whenever i'm at the games whenever i go to the games in the season so it's always nice to see that as well so without further delay mate are you ready to start the show absolutely let's go for it I want to start the pod by talking about your professional journey, mate, because it's encompassed a few different things, but namely the career that you've had in football journalism. So tell me first about why you felt inspired to do this, why you wanted to break into an industry that from the outside seems sometimes very closed off and very hard to get into and also make it financially viable for you. So I suppose realistically that when I was growing up, like every kid would be, you sort of dabble with various things that you might want to go into as a profession. I kind of had it in my head in my early teens that I wanted to be either like a doctor or a vet or something like that. You know, one of these fantasy professions that you see on TV. But 
then academically maybe wasn't quite <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs> wasn't really happening on that front and I think there was just reality a of re- kicked in <laughs> yeah just a little bit when I realized I wasn't going to be like Dr House and then there was kind of a moment of realization when I was maybe 15 or 16 just before going into doing A-levels I realized how much I loved football and then I realized that I was doing some writing about football and it just kind of stuck in my mind that I could actually get paid for doing this if I was good enough at it so I just kind of ramped up the writing side of things, building up a portfolio and stuff like that. I've been kind of fortunate, really. I've had a few timely breaks that have allowed me to get to where I am now. But I think it's right what you say in terms of other people, perhaps from the outside world, viewing it as quite a closed off profession, as in like you need to be really good. You need to be really passionate to write about football and to cover sport in general. And I think for the most part, that is probably true. But the way that sort of global online media is expanding now, I think there are more opportunities than ever for it. So if anybody wants to kind of go down that path, I could only encourage them. You know, you can never have an oversaturation of good content and stuff like that. So yeah, I just kind of stumbled into, like say, a moment of realisation that maybe I could actually make a living out of this. And, And here I am, as I say, things have lined up well so far. I want to go back to the beginning before we talk in depth about Sempre Milan, which is what you do as your full-time hustle. So tell me how you became infatuated with AC Milan as a team, as a culture, because when I was growing up, you know, you had the AC Milan team of the early noughties, you had Kaká, Seydorf, Pavel Nedved, Nesta, Ronaldinho, all these now icons that perhaps seemed even greater icons back then when you're a child and you're growing up with it. So was it those Galacticos that attracted you or was it just the style of play or was it just everything in between? To be honest, as you say, Milan were at the height of their powers, probably throughout the 90s, but then into the mid-2000s under Silvio Berlusconi's ownership, he wanted lots of shiny new toys, you know, wanted the biggest names and the biggest stars in football. And the amount of amazing world-class players that came through the doors, you're always going to be drawn to that kind of thing. I had posters of Beckham in a Milan shirt and all that kind of stuff. But realistically, it all sort of started with a, a school rivalry. I had friends in my class at school who was supporting Liverpool for the 2005 final and then it just became like well I'm going to root for Milan instead then (laughs) and then there was the rematch in 2007 and yeah just generally took a sort of passing interest but then it really kind of accelerated in the early 2010s when the team weren't even at their best so this is like 2013-2015 sort of range when perhaps was a little bit more disillusioned with town for reasons that deserve a separate podcast, but then started going to games, writing about the team, don't get me wrong, but then what definitely ramped up my interest and my level of attachment was going to San Siro for the first time, seeing a derby, seeing a cup final in Rome and and just realising how easy it can be to go and follow the team, you know, in person. Since then, it's just stuck. It's become a bit of an obsession, really. As I say, there's been some dark periods, particularly in the mid to late 2010s. We went a number of years without winning a trophy. Last season ended an 11-year Scudetto drought. So while perhaps the global fan base for the club has dropped off, for some reason, for me, it made it more appealing, I guess, to just sort Mm. of get stuck in there and be there through the dark ages. And another thing that's so important about supporting Milan is that they do still have such a huge worldwide reach and the amount of amazing people that I've met through supporting the club, be they in England, America, Australia, literally all corners of the globe, there are some fantastic people who, who support the club and who I've got to know and get to call friends. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. a Milan club in London here. 
there were 200 people at least turned out for the last game of the season to watch us win against Sassuolo and lift the league title. So I think that just goes to show how big a community it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I decided to sort of stick to the guns during those difficult times. You actually went to your first live game with your mum in Milan, which I can imagine was a really great experience for you both. And what sparked the desire to turn your passion for the team into something tangible like Sempre is now? What did you see that others hadn't? And what did you see in yourself that you could do as well? I think that despite what I've just said about the club having such a big global following, I always thought that there was a gap perhaps, in the quality of, of English language coverage of the team. So I attended my first game in 2014 when I was 18. So I was getting into quite serious writing at that point, as in building a portfolio of stuff for an actual job that I was hopefully going to get paid for. But we set up a site. We ended up setting up a site, sorry, two years after that. So what I was doing in the time in between was writing for a different website. And I would just write analysis articles on the games and things like that. But then there was a point where I realised, I think me and a couple of mates who I knew at this point could do it better than this current setup that I was writing for. So yeah, we decided to take the plunge and go for it. And for years, it sort of remained a side hobby. You know, we, we were still getting on and doing our separate stuff. But then on an evening, if there was something interesting to write about, we'd do it and we'd cover it. And we grew slowly at first, as you can imagine, you know, you've got to battle away and you've got to prove that you're in it for the long haul. But then things have grown exponentially in the last sort of two or three years to the point where we are now. But yeah, I think in answer to the question, it was more so just realising that there was a gap in the coverage and thinking we can do something with this because we know enough passionate people when it comes to the club and doors have opened for us a little bit as well in terms of the recent transformation with the club and the recent success that has certainly helped and we're very proud I guess of what we've built and and we have a fantastic team. I want to go a bit more in depth in Sempre Milan later on in the pod mate so I want to talk now about the early part of your sports journalism career and particularly when you were at university when you ended up at Planet Sports. So you were at university from 2014 to 2017. So Sempre started in your second year in January 2016. So tell me about that early career, how you got more experience, how you got that foot in the door and what you learned in this period. Yeah, so as I mentioned previously, I think it was sort of just going into A-levels that I realised that I wanted to become I guess what you would call a professional sports writer, whatever that might be, because I also have an interest in cricket and American sports that were quite niche, still are quite niche, you know, to write about for an English audience. So gathered some writing experience throughout sixth form while doing A-levels, writing quite a lot about the Bundesliga for a website called Vavil. That was just a bit of a, you know, as and when you can contribute. But then going into university, first year was pretty tough you get hammered with a lot of different things even though we were doing sports journalism as a degree we did like one sports module out of six and everything else was law you need to know this so that was quite heavy focused on studies during first year and came out with like quite a good score but then moving into second year as mentioned we set up the site in January 2016 but around that time was also when we were doing a professional development module at university so did six weeks of work experience, basically. That's how I, how I got in with Planet Sport. But during that time, it was quite a strange one because 
you're surrounded by friends who obviously have a lot of mutual interests. I mean, we all supported different teams and things like that, but there was just sort of a one common goal that we were going to end up desk writers at some office somewhere. And it's quite strange to think back that that was what we were aspiring to and only some of us managed to go on and do it. But yeah, in that second year was was when got the, the placement with Planet Sport and that was when I got my first real taster of like a professional working environment. Like this is how things are run on a day-to-day basis. And that was really important, you know, because while a lot of people were doing placements that perhaps they'd crowbarred in, shall we say, like they didn't necessarily want to do that, but they just needed to tick a box for the module. I sort of, I don't say stumbled into this placement, but I tried, for example, to get one at the Huddersfield Examiner to write about town and that wasn't happening. And then this kind of got recommended by a lecturer. So applied for it, got it, got in there, met the team, instantly became became mates with a lot of them and it went from there really. I was lucky in the sense that I think that Planet Sport, the way that they operate, they put a lot of faith in students essentially who they want to become the future of the business moving forward. You know, talented writers, they get them in, they make them feel part of the team and then hopefully they, they go on to become contracted with them. So yeah, that was uh, quite a big point really was getting up to that middle point in the second year and doing the development module and prior to that it was just quite a few side gigs you know none of them paid and that's what I think people should realize if you're listening to this and you want to become a football writer you are going to have to do a lot of work unpaid in the early days that's just the nature of the beast you've got to build a back catalogue of stuff to prove that you deserve a shot and perhaps that was a bit of an eye-opener because it was around about the same time that I was working in a pub, which I thought was a, a much easier job, but was getting paid good money for it, really. So that up until the Planet Sport thing was was a crucial point, really, because you sort of start to transform those dreams into what the actual reality is going to be. What happened after that initial placement finished? Because you told me off air that it was the boost you needed to your professional confidence, but it had a bit of a negative effect on your studies in the final year when it came to like concentration levels and stuff like that. And also tell me about how you managed it alongside the pub, like you mentioned. I think, yeah, negative impact would be a fair way of putting it. So the way that I try and explain this to people who ask about what doing the placement was like, you go to university with the hopes of getting a degree that will then secure you a good job in the chosen fields. That's the way I think most people would think about it. Other people, you know, they have bigger plans and all that. I did my six-week professional development module with Planet Sport. I was originally meant to be doing three weeks as a football writer on the team talk desk, and then I was going to be doing three weeks doing other things around the company. I did my three weeks with Team Talk and the editor there, James, who's become a, a really, really good friend. And honestly, he's had a very big role in sort of my development as a writer. Not that I'm a big writer or anything like that, but, you know, just to sort of get to now. And yeah, he said we want to keep him on for another three weeks with us doing this writing because I clearly saw something. And after the six weeks, they were pretty clear about wanting to keep me in and around the company doing some paid freelance work. It was kind of like, part-time hours shall we say 20 hours a week so that continued for the rest of second year into third year and going into third year it was also being mentioned that once I'd finished my degree the view was to give me a full-time contract perhaps not straight away perhaps not as soon as I'd finished studies but it wouldn't be long after so I knew my hours there were going to ramp up 
And what basically happened was that I went through my entire third year of university thinking, well, I've already got my job lined up, which is not the best mindset when the work is getting harder and harder and you've got a dissertation to do and and stuff. So perhaps in hindsight, I can say that that wasn't the most healthy mindset to go into third year with. But I was exhausted as well, to be honest. There was that, you know, throughout second and third year, I was working at a local pub. And even though that might have just been a couple of longer shifts a week, shall we say, they were lockups. So you finish at like half past 12 and you've got to completely shut the building down and stuff. And, you know, you're then up for a lecture early the next morning. I think I was in sort of three days a week throughout third year. And you realise you don't have many spare hours. Sometimes working Saturdays and missing football and when it starts to really erode into your social life and, you know, uni mates are going off and doing this and... I've got to stay and either do a planet sports shift or work at the pub. It became quite difficult. I think that affected my studies a little bit as well. I perhaps lost the drive to get a first, shall we say. And in the end, I did all right. Managed to pull through at the end and, and got a, a 65 overall for my degree, which I was very happy with. I think a 2 one's a cool degree. This might not be the best message to send, but first you've tried hard, haven't you, for three years? But I was quite happy with the 2-1 because it showed that I managed to balance things pretty well in the end. And that was hauled up by a... There was a module where we had to create our own website about a chosen topic. And this was when Sempre Milan had kind of become a bit more professionalised. We'd first started getting ad revenue and stuff. This was in 2017, so it'd been going for, you know, just over a year. And uh, I just said, can I use that? And they said, mm-hmm. yeah, fine, if you that want. That cuts a lot of work out. Yeah, it does. So I'm <laughs> sat there, like, researching bets to put on while them lot are grafting and, and building a website and stuff. And we had to do a presentation about how we built the site and our inspiration for it and things like that. And I've done this presentation to two people who weren't even part of the module. So they were, like, completely independent adjudicators. I was like, and here's where we implement the ad banners and here's where we have overlay ads and stuff. And they were just mind blown. And I got a 99 out of 100 on that module. And they said they'd never ever in the history of the university had someone create a site that already had advertising revenue. And the one mark I got off was because it was too well done. (laughs) So there you go. They couldn't give it 100 because then it has to go to like county level to see if it was actually worth the 100 so i was just like i'll take the 99 you almost got investigative a fraud for being too good basically yeah no but that was it that was a bit of a shortcut really so i, I think that hauled my mark up a little bit in the last year but that was a fun one so yeah right. sort of back to the original point sort of had three things on my plate really with the studies working at the pub working for planet sport suppose you could add a fourth thing with social life you know just trying to get enough time off to go to games and do the things that i enjoy and that keep you motivated throughout the week mm. so it was tough but you know i think every journey happens for a reason doesn't it and i, I probably mm. wouldn't be where i am right now at this moment if it hadn't been for doing the hard yards when i was was 2021 20, you said to me off air that out of all the jobs you've done in life it was the job in that pub pouring pints which shaped you the most and gave you more confidence than perhaps even university did so why was that and how long did it take you as well as that as a kid starting out in a pub to build that necessary maybe self-confidence that you need uh, every barman or barwoman needs to maybe push back against some of the more chatty or uh, nausey uh, regulars (laughs) 
That is true, yeah. One million percent, that is the thing that I've done in my life that has boosted my confidence times a thousand. I started working at the pub with my girlfriend at the time. We both started together and that can have its pros and its cons because we came a bit of a target as a double act, you know. But generally, I think perhaps some people may have the perception that the regulars that go into the pub that are there every night, no matter what, are going to be quite nice and quite friendly to new staff. In this place, and perhaps in other places, it was it was not the case. There are a couple of people that I still, you know, speak to and, and know well to this day. And one of them said that I was like a rabbit in the headlights for the first couple of weeks because it wasn't so much the pace of it because it wasn't a busy pub, but it was just you know you are getting ripped into a little bit. I was a skinny eighteen year old. You know there was no meat on me at all, and I don't know. I mean it absolutely wasn't bullying or anything like that because I'd give a bit back. But I think it's one of those things where you've just got to get familiar with everybody, and in addition to knowing people, you've you've got to actually do the pub side of things as well. So changing barrels when the managers aren't there and things like that. And you're always scared of messing something up and causing hundreds of pounds worth of damage. But it was just those first few weeks where you're getting to know people and and sussing them out and what's their humour like. And, you know, more and more regulars would come in and be like, who's this guy kind of thing. And But it was formative. Absolutely, it was formative because it thickens your skin. And Mm. it's all good natured as well. They weren't saying anything or making anything difficult to be nasty. It was all because it's like, this is what it's like in here. And, you know, it was a pub where there were quite a few people who went in who have quite a bit of money, shall we say, as well. So they didn't give a damn about it, really. I mean, you know, one of the guys was getting a taxi home to Harrogate every night from Rawdon, which is like 25 miles away, which said a lot about how close-knit they were, you know, as a group. Because he he could have gone to any pub in Harrogate, but he travelled every night to this pub in Rawdon near Leeds Bradford Airport just for a pint with his mates. But I think once you're in that circle, and it was a circle, it was the same guys who were in every night. Once you're there, they would absolutely look after you and defend you against anybody. If there was a difficult customer, they'd chime in and they'd make it known that I was in the right, you know. And it is fantastic to have people like that. I mean, one of the guys has a box not a box, but sort of a seat in the um, in the posh bit at Leeds, at Ellen Road. And one day he just sort of said, are you going to the Leeds v Huddersfield game? And I said, yeah, I was going to go in the away end. And he said, well, what about this? And, and he took me along for the whole three-course meal. Enemy, and the free... enemy lines, mate. It was. But, well, I mean, don't get me wrong, there was Boothie in there as well and stuff like oh, that. Right, so okay. it was a bit, of a, a bit of a mix. But but yeah, he's just like, you know, do you want to come along to this? And like, yeah, how much is it? He said, don't be daft. You know, it's it's fine. You're with me. And there was like a free bar, as I say, three-course meal. And we were sat in the, in these nice posh seats and behind was Massimo Cellino's chair. So that was like a need to keep my mouth shut kind of thing. But that was when Town won 4-1 as well. And Carrie Matmore and Harry Buns gone and stuff like that. I got a few words from Leeds fans in the director's area afterwards. But that was a fun day. But that's just an example of what they were willing to to do once you sort of got acquainted with them and things like that and as I say that is certainly perhaps the toughest but also the most rewarding job that I've had in terms of building mm. character and in terms of like just building mates you know so I'm very very thankful for that and I was quite sad when I had to leave there to be honest especially because 
the way the pub's gone now, can't really go in there for a drink anymore. None of them go there anymore. So it's quite sad how it's all turned out. But yeah, they were great people in there. Let's fast forward to graduation, post-graduation life now. So you've got your 2-1 from Leeds Trinity in sports journalism. You've got that guaranteed job in Planet Sport. How did your professional journey go from here? And when did it get to a point where it was becoming quite full-time now? So I graduated in... Was it July 2017 or August 2017? Summer 2017, anyway. And I was made aware that a full-time contract was coming at some point for me at Planet Sport. My hours had ramped up to the extent where I was doing 32 hours a week, but on a part-time contract, so still as a freelancer, which is essentially full-time hours. But with the self-employment stuff, it's stressful having to file a tax return tell you that so I just kind of kept pushing for it a little bit as well and and James who I mentioned before my editor he was pushing on my behalf and then I eventually got my first full-time contract and that felt absolutely amazing you know that was kind of a watershed moment where it was everything became real I had a tax code and uh, someone was paying national insurance for me and all that sort of stuff and it is a very very quick realization that right that's it in the world of work now and you start earning a bit more money through that as well you've got to learn how to to manage that and all of a sudden you go from perhaps being able to not pick and choose shifts but say as a freelancer I can't do that day unfortunately whereas when you're on a full-time contract and you're part of the staff rotor and stuff you have to fit life around work more than the other way around. So that was certainly one of the things that opened my eyes a little bit. Not that I expected it to be any different, but shall we say that I went on a run. I can't remember what the years were exactly of doing, I think, 120-odd town games in a row. I didn't miss a single one. Bristol City on a Friday night, Norwich on a Friday night, did absolutely everything. But then when you're into it and when you're doing full-time works, you have to make some concessions, especially in sports journalism where the hours can be unsociable I got into the job because I love football because I loved going to football and Saturday 3 p.m was kind of a a release from everyday life but then you realize you want a job covering football when does all the football happen Saturday at three o'clock so you realize then I think what you've signed up for but it was really really good to become a full-time member of that team And I also started spreading a little bit around the Planet Sport Network. So I did some writing for Football 365 as well, who are sort of, I guess, more known for their feature writing and things like that. They've got a brilliant team as well. So there was James and Matty at Team Talk, but then there was Sarah Winterburn, who's the editor of Football 365. She's a big town fan. So I always got on with her really well and Matt Stead and, and others. But I think as well, Another big part of the transition from being part-time, being freelance to full-time is that perhaps part-time, you're picking up the Sunday shifts, you're doing the evening shifts and things like that. And then when you go on to being a 9-5 or sometimes we do a 7am while 3pm, you're in the office a lot more. And when you're in the office a lot more, the vibe is just so much better, in my opinion. You know, I've not had an office with now being Semper Milan that I've not been able to go into an office regularly for what's coming up to three years now. It is a big, big difference. And I loved going into the office and I miss it now because of the, I mean, it sounds cliche, but because of the banter and because of the humour mm. and because everyone in there were kind of like, like-minded like individuals in a way. And there was a lot of really, really fun and interesting characters in there. 
writing about all kinds of things. There was rugby guys in there. I did a bit of writing for Cricket 365 as well, but it was just such a wide-ranging operation and there was a real good mix of people in there that, again, like the pub, I would still consider to be very good friends today. So, yeah, that was it. It was sort of going from studies, pub, bit of work at home to office desk writer and I absolutely loved it to be honest and I'm making it sound like why did I bother leaving now but (laughs) yeah that was it and I owe a lot to to Planet Sport really for everything they really stuck by us especially during some challenging times as well that was a great part of my early Mm. career shall we say. Let's go back to St. Milan and this baby that you've grown from the side hustle with, that you started with Jan Mario and Isaac, who's a friend of Vent as well, to the full-time hustle it is today. So tell me about this journey to make it more professional and that, shall we say, process where you were approached out of the blue by that investor and this became your reality. Yeah, so as mentioned, the site started in January 2016. It was me and Jan Mario, who is another Huddersfield Town supporting AC Milan fan. One of three that I know. And I was going to say, how many are there? I'm one of them. So <laughs> a, a, a very, very tight-knit group there. And he knew someone called Isaac through a previous kind of... They dabbled in a website that didn't really go anywhere, should we say. And we all kind of came together and it was because of a trip actually it was a trip that me and Jan Mario went on to watch the Milan derby and Milan won 3-0 and of course you're riding the crest of a wave and sort of said well look let's do it let's start this website let's go for it so we did that we built it it was definitely a side hustle as you say for many months and I want to say maybe four years it was like that because you just have to fit it in around other things while it wasn't generating an awful lot of money. That's just the way it was. But I think Don't that mental health, of... mate. There's no money in mental health either. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the things that is a big part of our success, as simple as this sounds, is that we stuck around. We hung in there, even when there were times where it's like, this isn't really going anywhere. Even though the views were increasing and things, it's kind of hard to take a next step when you've all got other things on your plate. So I was doing work. I was like, two or three things a day for the website is probably the most that I can do at the moment, realistically. Perhaps I've got a day off or we were covering match content and that seemed to be well-received, player ratings and things like that. But it was tough to see where the next step was going to come from. The team sort of had a transformation in fortunes I'd say 2018 onwards and things started to pick up our views started to pick up we got more enthusiasm as the team started doing better as well naturally we were producing a little bit more but it was certainly not something whereby I thought I could take the plunge here and leave the job that I've got at the moment and do this full time and it really really was out of the blue when somebody called Will from a network called Rocket Sports based down here in London in Shoreditch said we really like what you've built we're trying to expand and we see your website as a good fit for our project the premise of it is that rocket are the sort of umbrella company and they've got different club websites under their um, so like barstool in a way in america similar to that exactly yeah, yeah exactly but they've all got their own independent branding shall we say so they basically acquire websites to become part of it and expand the network so there's you know there's a liverpool website chelsea as you can imagine and as part of this they were looking to sort of expand into europe and they picked us as the english milan website to go for in order to do this there were a lot of negotiations as you can imagine a lot of back and forth about how we wanted things to work 
But what became quite clear from the start of those negotiations is that the plan was for there to be enough investment for me to leave my job at Planet Sport and do it full time. And once that is the starting point of things, it's like, wow, someone here out of nowhere has seen what we've done and seen the potential for it, more importantly, I think, and is is basically willing to back us with, you know, financially as well as, as, as giving us the tools that we need as part of the network to grow and things like that. So, yeah, it took months really to get the deal in a position where all parties were happy with it. But then it was like, we've got to do this, basically, the, the offer that we had in place. And the biggest leap was definitely for me, because at this point, there were three of us as business partners. There was myself, Isaac, and a guy called Anthony from America, who'd sort of taken Jan Mario's place as Jan Mario was doing quite hard hours as a chef at work, and he had to take a step back from it and things like that. And got into a position where all three of us were happy with it. It was the biggest leap of faith for me, because I was leaving a full-time job in order to do it. Whereas the others were doing other things, they had their own jobs and, and Isaac was at university and stuff. But I was happy with where the deal was. I thought, I don't know when the next opportunity like this is going to come along for us to say, we can do this full time. We can make a living out of this website and we can do all the things we wanted to do. We can finally pay a graphic designer. We can finally get people creating videos for us you know it just unlocks so many doors doing it like this turns really from a non-professional to a professional organization and then I went to Planet Sport and I did kind of spring it on them I hadn't said anything because I thought that things might just fall apart I didn't want to tempt fate by mentioning it but I just said this is it I've got this offer and I hope you can appreciate that I really do see it as like once in a lifetime. They knew already about the website and they knew that mm. it might reach a point where that's what I wanted to do. And they were always very supportive of it, to be honest. But I think that even they, and especially James, were quite surprised how quick it came along. And I just said, I've got to do this, you know. And it was like something out of a film, you know, I've got to do <laughs> this, please let me go. And they were like, yeah, you can't turn that down. But then Tim, who is the managing director of Planet Sport, to be fair to him, he put together a, an offer to kind of say, stay stay with us. Might not necessarily be able to match it, but stay with us and, and we can make something work and you can become part of our network. But there were a couple of things that just meant that it was right to go with Rocket and to do sort of a, I'd say, clean break, but, you know, just go for it and jump into it with both feet. And it has proven to be to date, the best decision that probably I've made. And that's not a reflection on Planet Sport at all. I absolutely loved it there and I love everyone there. But I guess sometimes you do have to take that jump and say, let's do it because I'll only regret it if I don't. You've now effectively achieved the dream of turning your side hustle into your full-time career. Mate. It's something I'm, tr well, at least want to do at some point with them, but who knows, there's no money in mental health, so we'll see. However, what I do want to ask you is that on the flip side, obviously you know, you were doing this side hustle out of complete love and I guess a long-term ambition. Perhaps it came a bit more quickly than you thought, but you were still doing it with a long-term ambition to perhaps make it that full-time career. So now it is the work. Has it affected the love for football at all? I hate football now. I hate it. <laughs> Honestly, like, I, I try and, when I go for a pint with mates on a Friday night, you know when you've got something that burns so much in your mind that you can't actually formulate the words to even begin to start talking about it? But it's like that. Like, I want to tell them everything that's wrong with football and the way that the game's governed and the way the game's run and how money is ruining absolutely everything. And that applies with the Super League and with FIFA and with the Qatar World Cup. But uh, no, 
just to correct the previous statement, I don't hate football. I think football is still an incredibly innocent thing in isolation, but I do hate all of the politics and the money the that's politics, around it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. And that's why I think that there's something quite precious about maybe where we are as town fans. You know, we kind of live sort of at the bottom end of this trickle-down economics theory when it comes to football. And yeah, we've tasted the big time and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, no matter what, we can turn out with the same 16,000, 17,000 fans every week and things stay the same. And we, we still sell our best players and we don't sign anyone that good. And there's something quite, I don't know, endearing about that. And I think... I think it's made me a lot more aware. I think aware is the word that I would use. And you do realise how many football fans, and and this is a brilliant thing, by the way, how many football fans are blissfully ignorant of a lot of the things that go on at the top end of the game. They don't care. They just want to read the team at two o'clock, sit down with their pie in a bovril at 10 to three, and they'll go home moaning at five o'clock about a chance that we missed or whatever. And that'll be it for the rest of the week. That's like how my grandma and how my dad experienced football and and that is fantastic but yeah when you're covering it 12 hours a day I mean I I tend to do 9am while 9pm just covering everything to do with Milan Um, you do perhaps realise that the game that you grew up playing jumpers for goalposts all that it's just not as innocent as you think and you learn how much power the people at the top have you learn how much power agents have player power, everything that comes with it. And in that sense, it's affected my love for football. But I will always remain that fan who turns the TV on to watch Milan or or goes to San Siro, who goes to watch town in the arse end of the country uh, on a Tuesday night, who goes for those 90 minutes and cheers and is as partisan as, as is possible. That will never change and I will always have that connection to the sport. I imagine a lot of writers are probably the same as that as well you know we all grew up loving football for the right reasons but then perhaps when you get to work in the profession you unearth the darker side of the iceberg shall we say before we reflect on this journey i just want to quickly talk about covid and how that impacted sempre and i guess affected your mental health mate so you'd obviously just left your full-time job to pursue this dream full-time and then a global pandemic basically struck so Did you at any point worry that it would destroy the dream or force you to go back to it being a side hustle? Yeah, naturally, we did worry, definitely. In the time when I started full-time at Semper Milan, up until the start of COVID, things had gone really well. You know, revenue was on the up and we were very quickly realising how... And I don't do it for profit, just to make it totally clear, but it's always good when the site performs well and we realised how profitable it could be and how much potential there was to grow it. And then, as you say, COVID hit and it did have a big impact, to be honest, not only because there were no games to cover, which naturally affects traffic, but the entire market took a dive in terms of ad revenue. And you see the numbers on the screen, you realise you've taken a hit and there's nothing you can do about it until things get going again. That was tough. At no point was I scared that I'd lose it because Will and Rocket, to be fair to them, were really good. And they said, we are keeping everybody on throughout COVID. We're going to see this out. We've got enough money in the business. We're going to make sure we see the other side of this. This was perhaps when it looked like being a two or three month thing. And then next thing you know, it's turned into a year long, various lockdowns and stuff. So yeah, things did take a hit from a revenue point of view. 
and from a views point of view because of the fact there was no football to watch and to get angry about and to comment on and my theory is though that what that did is kind of bottle everything up so when football came back perhaps this is just for Milan because Milan then went on on the title push and as I say won the Scudetto last year but yeah it bottled everything up everybody's interest was just kind of put onto a simmer and then it boiled and boiled now, when football came back, and particularly when fans started coming back to stadiums, everything just exploded for us from a business point of view. And I do think that's probably true for the wider footballing community, shall we say. And potentially violence as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is that as well. But yeah, I think people realised how much they missed the routine of it and, and going to the games, or even if they didn't go to games and they would perhaps watch the game from wherever they were in the world and then they would log on to our website to see what we thought about it. And that went, you know, it went. There's no two ways about it. Our views didn't absolutely nosedive, don't get me wrong. But, you know, as I say, without games, it's tough to to know what to cover. But then once we moved past COVID, things certainly got better. In terms of how it affected me mentally, I think I was probably the same as everybody else, including my parents. I was living with my mum and dad at this point. And all of a sudden, they couldn't go into the office. I had been told by Planet Sport that I could go in and use their office whenever, which was really, really good of them, you know, because I technically left the company. But they were like, because you'd be working from home all the time. Otherwise, if you ever want to come in and use the office, you can do. And that was amazing of them to do that. But then COVID came and, and couldn't do that. So I guess a uh, shared experience with a lot of people where you're confined to your own four walls. And especially living with my mum and dad at that point, my mum had the living room because she did a lot of like conference calls and stuff like that for her job. My dad had their bedroom to do the same conference calls and stuff. And I had my bedroom. And even though we were all living under the same roof for all those months during COVID, we were still quite separated in that sense because work takes over, doesn't it? And you've, and you've got to try and keep going the best that you can. So yeah, I guess just felt a bit cut off. But then on the flip side of that, as mates, we all stayed in touch and things like that. We did them daft apps, you know, where you could do quizzes. House party. Yeah, yeah. that's the RIP. one. House party, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like Friday nights, we'd have a Skype and stuff. And I think that that was really important. And from what I gather, other mates didn't have that. And they found it a lot, lot tougher because you realise how much of a role the Friday night pint has in your life, as mad as it sounds, but that chance for you to all meet up once a week and just talk either absolute nonsense or talk about more significant stuff. It really did play a huge role. And through COVID, I think, yeah, not being able to see mates and things like that, that same as everybody, it does sort of wear you down a little bit after a while, especially when the light at the end of the tunnel kept being moved further away. Mm. It's like two weeks, no, it's going to be six weeks. I remember the eat out to help out thing when there was the... You know, I can't remember what it was, like 50% off at participating. We must have gone out three times during that week just to like make the most of it. And it became apparent pretty quickly after that that we were going to be going back into a lockdown. So I think the uncertainty got to a lot of people and it did for me as well. And as a final question then, mate, throughout this journey and doing Sempre Milan for as long as you have, what have both of them taught you about yourself? Um... Very good question. I think Semper Milan has taught me that this is going to sound really cliche, but if you've got something and you really believe in it and you put 
even your spare time into it when other people might want to sit down and I don't know watch tv or do whatever if you just keep putting work into it it accumulates and eventually you can turn it into something that goes even beyond what you had in your mind so there's definitely that aspect of belief I suppose if you really really do believe that you've got something special and and you do put the time into it then then yeah it will develop and just to add on to that as well don't be afraid to take the pub job don't be afraid to go for the thing that you think oh god you know it's eight pound an hour really or I'm not saying that's what mine was but you know whatever it might be working in a restaurant working in a pub because even though that might not have anything to do with what you go into in your career it can be so important for building you up building your character and things you know I'm not saying that every job like that you go into you're going to have the same banter and things like that but I do think that it is important to have that grounding in a sense you know not everything can be a direct straight motorway to what you want to be sometimes you do have to just put in some hard work and take yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit as well. We've talked all about Sempre Milan. We've talked about Ollie, the football journalist. I want to go a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So first of all, I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me about early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Ollie we meet here? My early life, right up until and probably including university, was incredibly probably boring. There was nothing of note to talk about. I'm very, very fortunate in the sense that I had an incredibly stable home life. You know, I know friends of mine went through perhaps difficult phases when their parents might have split up and things while we were at school, and, and it really, really took a toll on them. But I was very, very lucky throughout my entire sort of early life to have parents who were incredibly supportive of whatever I wanted to do and were happy to back me with whatever decision that I felt was best. So yeah, I certainly owe a lot to them and also literally lived in the same house for 25 years. They're still there now, even though I've moved down to London and my room is now my mum's overspill wardrobe. So um, (laughs) that's fun for when I go back and visit. But yeah, same house, same street, same familiar faces literally the same neighbours for like 18 years. Went to a school that was five minutes away and then, you know, high school was just a bit further away. But I, I think everything was just very much within the confines of where I lived, which was Geisley, Yeed and Rod, and played cricket for the team over the road for quite a few years in my early teens, up until playing a bit of third and second team stuff and then decided to knock it on the head because uh, I thought following town was a better idea. Um <laughs> Could have made For the it listeners, it probably wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. Plot twist, it wasn't. So, as I say, I mean, some people might call it insular or, as I say, probably boring. Local, but local, mate. Local, yeah. that's a good word, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, and, and, and that went all the way into early adult years with, you know, you drink in the same pubs and uh, you see the same people out and about each weekend. But I realise now I'm here how much I love that and kind of miss the familiarity of it. But yeah, in, in terms of my, my early life, there really wasn't any particular trauma to deal with, nothing like that. There was nothing that I would consider to be a massive challenge. In fact, on the contrary, as I say, it was more so sometimes supporting mates who had been through that. And also, I must say as well that, like, younger years, we travelled really, really well. Like, 
you know, my mum and dad don't drive or anything like that. They don't need to. They work in Leeds City Centre, so they just get the train every day. So I've not had a car for a long time, but that money sort of went towards, like, doing things as a, as a family. So we went to Barbados a few times and Australia for the Ashes and yeah, just all over. And I think that was something that what I gather from my friends and stuff, they didn't really get to experience and I feel very, very fortunate to have travelled so well to literally all parts of the world right up until I was 16 and they stopped wanting to pay for me. Mm. Um, but that's <laughs> that's another thing. Mm. So, yeah, there wasn't an awful lot that I can look back on and think that was a difficult and challenging moment. And I do feel really, really fortunate for that because it wasn't the case for a lot of people around me. I almost felt at times like, wow, I've been dealt a really good hand here. When's it all going to change? What's going to come along and destabilise this really nice upbringing that I've had? And it never did, to be honest. And it's only when moving away when life totally changed because throughout university, I stayed at home because it was Leeds Trinity. It was like 15 minutes on the bus. So to save money, and I was saving a lot of money at that point through the two jobs and stuff, I also decided to stay at home because I went to university with my girlfriend at the time. I was going to go to Huddersfield. I even looked at going to Gloucester. I don't know why, but it looked... That's a rogue one. Rogue one to move out to Gloucester. It's like, it was Cheltenham. And I don't know why I had in my head that Cheltenham, probably the races. I don't know. I had in my head that moving to Cheltenham would be quite cool. But yeah, decided to go to Trinity because that's where she was going to do her degree and I could do my degree there and we could both live at home and we could both keep our jobs at the pub. It was a nice way to keep everything on a level. And yeah, and I decided to basically just live at home for the entire three years of university, which means that I probably had quite a different university experience to a lot of people, but I was still able to kind of dip in and out of it. So if the lads were going out on a Wednesday night or a Friday night or a Saturday or whatever, I was still 15 minutes away on the bus so I could be there with them in Edinley and whatever but it was nice to be able to withdraw and not have the same problems that they had with student life you know in terms mm. of nothing in our student flat works and the landlord won't respond to us and stuff while I'm sat having a barbecue at home and stuff you know <laughs> um, so yeah I guess as you said local sheltered very non-traumatic I'm very lucky in that sense to have, mm. to have had the early years that I did you mentioned there the power of your friends and you mentioned the challenge of moving to London which you have done now and, and many town fans would perhaps uh what what's the phrase reverse snobbly say that you've betrayed the north or something like that but <laughs> one challenge that you have said that you've had is losing that routine of seeing your mates on those Friday nights and going to town matches as regularly so why were they special and what do you miss about it? The routine is probably what I miss about it the most. Not so much just the, you know, you do your nine to five and then you you go to the pub and you spend all your money that way. That's not perhaps the way to look at it. It was more so that just we all knew that that's what we did kind of thing. We all met up on an evening. It wasn't always at the pub, don't get me wrong. We (laughs) we do some different stuff sometimes. But you would just talk about, yeah, a mixture of absolute nonsense and sometimes we'd help each other through stuff, you know, the typical female issues and, and things like that, stuff that naturally comes up. And I think... We didn't realise at the time, and it's perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, that that was our release, especially in addition to going to the football. That was what we did to make sure that we were always releasing the pressure valve every now and again, because I think 
your adolescence can get on top of you sometimes because mm-hmm. there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of things that come and knock you back as well as push you forward. And moving down to London, I, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that. I do have friends down here, friends from back home who have moved down here. There's, there's one or two, but it, it's perhaps just not possible for different reasons. One, it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, You, know, you can get three pints for the price of one up north. Um, I've just paid £7 for a Tetley. That's what I, that's what I heard at Wembley about five oh, years ago. <laughs> really? Yeah. I want that as a tattoo. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's also just that like, London's such a big place and mm. finding that same meeting point, it doesn't exist. It's not like the station pub. You, yeah. you can't just say, oh, meeting station. Unless you grew up here in your local part of London. Yeah. yeah I, like I, I have sort of had the privilege too. of, yeah. So yeah, that kind of social side of things has changed for me, but perhaps better as well, because I think uh, when you can't see your friends every week, you turn inwards a little bit more and you start to think, right, what can I do to, you know, I started the gym down here, for example, and I find that to be quite a good way of going and just having a bit of time to yourself. And I work long hours, to be honest, not always typing four or five articles an hour but got to be there for the long coverage and and that does take up quite a lot of time as well but yeah I mean it's one of those things where it might feel like the most token thing in the world to meet your mates and go to the pub for a few pints on a on a Friday night or whenever it might be I mean I used to drag mates along to watch town with me and stuff like that but you realize how much it matters to just be surrounded by people that you can have a laugh with and Going back to COVID, that's one of the things that you miss because there's no replacement for face-to-face company, in my opinion. No. There just isn't, and that part, I suppose, is is still missing. But even though we've been here for coming up to a year now, it still doesn't feel like we've actually moved to London, as weird as that <laughs> sounds, because it's so big and because there are so many things to take in and because we only lived in our first flat for 11 months and we've now moved somewhere else, it's like starting again. So I think that with a bit of time, everything will become a bit more familiar. And, you know, it's always good to welcome welcome the lads from back home down here yeah. just so they can get a bit of a taste of how everything is. But uh, Get but to yeah, first pieces with important. your local boss, man, mate. That's the first step. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Always get yeah. to first oh, basis. Tennessee land. That's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's and the local and the boss shop. and the boss man in the chicken shop because if he gives you two extra that's, wings because you're nice to him and he comes in, that was always good. That was the guy, yeah. So yeah, and now here we are where we live, Tufnell Park. Lived in Camden Town before. It is a very, very different part of London, shall we say? It's quite leafy and green. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was stood outside <laughs> a couple of doors down last night, and yeah, you think, oh, okay, we're in a bit of a nicer, nicer part. Yeah, we exactly, mate. Camden, Islington, Islington great, North, mate. Yeah, Camden's great, but it is incredibly intense. Yeah, um, it's chaos. It's it, chaos every yeah. day of the week. <laughs> mayhem. It's absolute mayhem. A Tuesday night's a Friday night there, if you know what I yeah. mean. And yeah, just to cap that bit off, I mean, I'm so, so fortunate to have an incredible group of mates, but almost three groups of mates in the sense that I've got the lads that grew up with, went through school, and you've always got that kind of deeper bond with because you went through everything together and you lived close to each other. Then the group of lads who I went to uni with, who you probably have more shared interests with because you all ended up at the same uni doing the same degree. And then the group of lads who I go and watch town with, some of them are daft as a brush, probably me included sometimes, but those are the people that you've travelled up and down the country with every Saturday for years out of the same blind loyalty. And I think it is important to have a mixture of friends like that and would die for absolutely 
any of them. But I feel incredibly fortunate to have the group of mates that I do. And sometimes I do wish I could just see them more. I wish I could bring them all down here. It would be mint. But um, life does take you different ways, I suppose. The final part of your journey I want to discuss, mate, is your own education about mental health. Because despite the fact that you've said you've not gone through any real significant trauma, which is absolutely fine, and it's a great thing that you haven't, your partner and previous guest, Jordan, has, and she's gone through difficulties, and you can go back to the previous episode I did with her if you want to find out more about those listeners. But as her partner, how have you learned to support her and develop your own understanding of mental health at the same time? It's been huge, really, for my understanding of mental health and the way that minds work, because while I've had, as mentioned, I don't know, like a sheltered and, and very stable upbringing and everything kind of worked out okay, meeting John, getting to know Jordan and understanding the difficulties that she's faced with her mental health journey and the things that she still battles now on a day-to-day basis it has been absolutely huge. It has totally opened my eyes. I mean, I've had friends who have suffered with things, uh, depression, anxiety, those sorts of things, but there's always that element of distance. Whereas now, you know, it has been a really, really good education into the different ways that the mind can work. And I guess the concept of spiraling a little bit, how to stop that process into being sort of in in a bit of a panic. Jordan will probably admit that over the last two or three years and I don't think that this is because of me at all but I think over the last two or three years perhaps as things in her life have started to fall into place her mental health overall has improved there's still little ups and downs within that but just by being with her I've been able to understand the ways that I can help she says when she's talking through her problems be it something at work that she wishes she'd have done differently or be it be it an issue with plans anything the stresses that come along in day-to-day life you know perhaps before I might have sat there and tried to hit each one with a with a counterpoint and try and sort of rebalance things but now I've understood that I'm best to sit there and listen because if I listen to the problems it's helping her to rationalize things and then when the things that are perhaps irrational worries I can say well you don't need to worry about that because of this this and this but realistically I think the most important thing is, as I say, just to, to listen, to be there, to be an ear, really, and help them to understand that it's okay if my mind works in a certain way. My mind is programmed to kind of target issues as they come up, and it's like, that's how I'm going to deal with that. That's, how I'm gonna that's deal. a very male so, thing as well, stereotypically. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it is, yes. Uh, yeah, as you say, it is. But then it, it doesn't work that way, perhaps for Jordan and for other people. Things mm-hmm. kind of pile up and they get on top and then they get over a certain line. And yeah, it can become a very, very stressful thing. And I totally understand that. And as I say, I think I've, I hope I've got better at, at learning that that's how things work and just being able to help in any way that I can. But also perhaps there was a realisation at one point as well that even though her mental health is improving and hopefully will continue to improve to a point where the lows aren't as low and that perhaps, you know, be more balanced, is that I am not going to be, as I am, I am not going to be the psychiatrist who comes mm-hmm. along and fixes everything. And that's important and that's, for you as well, mate, for your mental it health. Is, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes I have to understand that those worries are there and just by being there to listen to them, I'm helping in a way. Don't have to do everything. Don't have to fix every single little thing. And and that has helped me a lot as well. Sort of that, that part realizing. But 
generally speaking, I sort of understood early in our relationship that she'd been through some traumatic experiences and generally wasn't happy with sort of university life and, and things like that. But I can also see the transformation into where she is now, much more confident, doing very well in, in a professional life and has thrown herself into things that she never would have done before. And we've moved down to London, we've completely uprooted. So yeah, it has been a, a transformation. As I say, I, I hope that continues. But she is an inspiration, really, because she has such an active lifestyle. You know, she <laughs> sleeps six hours, gets up, does marathon training, is in the office for seven o'clock, stays behind to revise, comes home, either I'll cook tea or she cooks tea, and that's it. It's another day done, and it, five more days, four more days of that. But yeah, the amount of effort that she puts into everything is is an inspiration, really. And as you've entered this world and you've accessed the lexicon of language, shall we say, around mental health. How have you learned about the helpful things to do and say and not say? So, for example, the importance of things to do and say, like checking in, the ask twice rule, establishing and respecting boundaries and stuff like that. And then also there's a few, what I would view, unhelpful platitudes that a lot of people that perhaps they say from a good place, but actually isn't actually a good thing to say. So they, so, so I used to always get, if you need to chat, let me know. Or I'm here if you need me. And it's just quite a very blasé thing that absolves that person of responsibility towards mm -hmm. you or things which are perhaps even more cliche. Just try just try and think positively, mate. Just try and think positively, you know, things mm. like that. So how have you learned yeah. the nuances and the balance to strike? Do you know, I, I'm going to start this with the, with something that I saw on this morning. God, this was months ago now, but they had the, the Speakmans on. People may or may not be familiar with them, but they're kind of like, I don't know. They're strange, I'll be honest. They're not but quacks, they, they are they? <laughs> I don't know what they are. But they sort of go on and they answer people's questions about various difficulties that they're going through and things like that. It might be, my dog's died, or it might be, I think my husband's seen someone else, or, you know, all those kind of different... It's Trisha. Now, Bring back Trisha. Basically, <laughs> basically is. But in my opinion, one or two people can't answer for those two extremes of the spectrum. You know, you, you've got to specialise. But their response to one of the things was, what you've got to do is take your negative and turn it into a positive. I just think that is one of the most unhelpful things I've ever heard. What do you mean, take the negative and turn it into a positive? How can you do that? Her dog's just died. How are you meant to make a pot? Oh, think about all the memories you had together. I don't know. I just found that daft. And I think that's one thing that I've tried to avoid as well, is just being like, well, okay, you might have done something wrong at work, but we're having a KFC for tea. So that's that's all good. It's not very helpful, that. But you mentioned about the ask twice thing. I think that's quite important to be like, you know, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. No, but are you really okay? You know, And that's sort of when you can then start to uncover some of the problems. In terms of... Yeah, I guess checking in with mates as well. I think there are, maybe this is a bloke thing and there's still a stigma around it. But my mate asked me the other day, how are you doing? Like, how are you finding London? How are things? Have you, have you settled? Mm. And I was kind of like taken aback as if to be like, no one's actually asked that yet. And I think it's more of a bloke thing to ask around about stuff as in like, oh, what's your plans for the weekend kind of thing to check that you're keeping busy and, and stuff. There's never the straight up, 
how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? That still feels quite alien as blokes. And maybe it's a thing for females as well. I don't know. But yeah, it's such an interesting journey where you're learning things all the time that help and that don't. And as mentioned before, I think one of the massive things was realizing that I'm not going to be able to fix every single problem. So sometimes it's best just to sit there and try and extract little bits. Another thing that's unhelpful is just saying you're being daft. And that was me at first. And I'm trying not to say it as much anymore, but like... Say it in a different way. Say it in a different way. Maybe, you know, you're thinking about it like this or then, you know, you should be thinking about it like this, you know. Helpful challenges. Yeah. Just not dismissing things out of hand, definitely. Mm. And yes, there are worries that come along that are so minor that I struggle to compute at first why that might become a bigger problem. But it's definitely not the right thing to say you're being silly, you're being daft, you know, that, mm. that's irrational. It's better to, to talk through those things. Validate but, and healthily challenge, I would say, is the better way I of think, doing it. Yeah, I think that's a, a really, really good way of putting it. It's a horses for courses thing as well with, you know, some problems require a lot more empathy, whereas other things, especially if it comes to like work, you can actually talk about things practically and say well this is what you can do next week or don't worry about this because you know you've been told by your boss not to worry about it and yeah there are different ways but I have to be honest like I'm still learning massively and that's not just with regards to Jordan that's with regards to learning how to check in on mates and and for it to be an organic thing rather than a forced I'm checking in on your mental health you know because I think that can be quite a bit like whoa so but I do think Broader speaking, the, there has been a, a big shift in the last, I don't know, could be two, could be a few years, getting people to open up to each other. And I think that that is huge. And I mean, look at someone like Sam Fender, for example, who is pretty much as mainstream as they come now. But he's got songs on his album about friends who have taken their own life. And he wants to get that in the public eye to say, you know, look, lads talk to each other. That pint down the pub on a Friday, he's like me when he talks about that. That can be very, very important for you in terms of opening up and, and keeping mm. things going. I think it's the importance of checking in as well. Like, I think that there is rightly and well-meaningfully a lot of talk about lads talk to each other, but it's also like we should be talking to the lads. I think we mm-hmm. need to shift it a little bit because yeah. then we're almost subtly saying, well, lads, you need to speak. Otherwise, you've only got yourselves to blame when things happen to you, sort yeah. of thing, which I find yeah. a bit unhelpful. And a lot of times they don't know how to bring a problem yeah, to somebody. Yeah, they don't know. Or they don't, um, they're not recognising it themselves. They might not even know what yeah. they're going through. I mean, I think the most, probably the most common one when you, you're in your teenage years in terms of it being a, a massive shot to the system is either losing a family member, which, which happens, or going through a breakup. I would say those were the two main things. And I mean, I was 17 what, eight years ago now? God, I feel old. But certainly then, that time ago, we didn't know how to talk to each other about how we were feeling after a breakup. Um, People still don't, mate. That, no, they don't. No, they don't. And and that's why I think you're totally right when you say it shouldn't necessarily just be about, I've got something inside that I need to get out. Who do I go to kind of thing? The importance of checking in is absolutely huge because... Mm. One of those conversations could really, really change someone's mindset for the better. And also, mate, I would say that it's not always going to be a lad who finds talking to someone who's professional to be helpful. You know, they might mm. need someone to, to like to initially vent it to, and they might need someone to check in on them. 
but yeah. therapy might not be the best route for them. So if we're constantly saying to everyone, this is the thing that you have to do, it's not going to be helpful for the lads who say, well, actually, I just need to do more of this skateboarding hobby I have, or I need to maybe go back on medication, but you know, talking might not work. So I think if we put this blanket rule that every lad has to talk, then we're not accounting for the nuances, I don't think. No, I, I totally, totally agree with that. I mean, it is quite a big thing to say I'm seeing a counsellor. It shouldn't be really, shouldn't because be, no. if it's got to the stage where you need professional help, then that's it. And absolutely more often than not, it really does help. But you're right, there are sort of devices in place and things that we can do that can perhaps help in a way that 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 can't because sometimes all people need is a deep conversation about something that they haven't had in the entire 12 months previous shall we say that's Mm. one thing that I do think that doesn't happen enough especially among lads is you're almost frightened to reveal too much about your feelings because there is still a stigma surrounding that I'm lucky I've got great mates if I came to them and, and said I'm really you know really really feeling quite down about something they would absolutely be there to listen but there are perhaps more let's say toxic and more like competitive male circles where it would be almost used as leverage people would use it as a stick to beat people with and that absolutely needs to, to change 100 percent or perhaps a, per- a perception if it does if it doesn't exist a perception that it would be used maybe yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly that and and that's what might put people off talking and i do think that there has been a shift as, as i mentioned before i do think there has been a more positive shift towards that and i do think it's more in the mainstream now that we need to talk to each other you know it's a two-way street and i only hope that that continues because you know some of the statistics that you read are, are really really worrying and staggering about the the loss of young lives from people who have found it way too much when i know so many yourself... mate. yeah i hear, and, I hear and... about i hear about one every i used to hear about one every two weeks like not yeah. someone i knew well sometimes it would be someone i knew but it would be like someone i see on twitter like a viral post my hmm. son has taken their own life my brother has my uncle has my dad has da 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 and it yeah. obviously goes viral because I'm in that space and I see these tweets and I, the algorithm unfortunately sends it to me. But yeah, I mean, at one point I was, I mean, back when I first started Venn, this is almost, it'll be five years ago to September that I started Venn. I was seeing at one point, like one a week. Yeah. Like, genuinely. Yeah. That's terrible, isn't it? It must make you feel both ways because obviously you're naturally going to be more exposed to that kind of thing because of what you're doing. So you, you, you're naturally going to feel quite down about it, seeing all these things all the time. But then on the other yeah. hand, is there that thing like, okay, I now understand why I'm doing this because I want to make some actual change to what's Yeah, going on. it's a difficult one, mate. It used to affect me a lot more than it did. I think when I hadn't had my mental health was sorted out as much, I think I used yeah. to feel like irrationally oh if I only could have reached that person or I could have done this or I could have like that and then maybe they wouldn't have done it but obviously that was quite an irrational thing to think but because I had the platform I put a lot of pressure on myself Mm. and maybe too much responsibility whereas now obviously it affects me and uh, like it would with any person but I do have a a certain level of healthy emotional detachment where I cannot let these things which are completely outside of my locus of control affect me quite badly. But yeah, I mean, at one point it was getting, it would mean it was a joke how bad it was. I don't see as much anymore, but maybe that's because my Twitter feed's changed and Twitter generally has made it just sending people's accounts that I don't follow. But anyway... Nottingham Forest getting quite a few of those tweets. Yeah, yeah. yeah again, imagine, imagine separate, you do, mate. Yeah, that's a separate issue. Let's reflect then on your mental health journey. So, what has it taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to that Ollie who was 
the nervous lad starting out in the pub with the rabbits in the headlights or the Ollie who had that offer on the table from that investor for St. Pro Milan, or maybe the Ollie who was considering moving to London and uprooting his life. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think if I could speak to myself from sort of the point of view of the path that I was on at that point, I would say to, again, this sounds cliche, but just always follow your gut on things. If you think something's worth doing and worth going for, then do it because as I mentioned before I think I've been fortunate in the sense that the major decisions that I've made in my life so far have led me to a position where right now I I feel feel very happy happy you know in terms of my personal life and where we are living down here I wouldn't have thought that imaginable when I was at university for example but also professionally I'm, I'm really really proud and happy with what me and the other guys have built with Sempre Milan from more of a mental health perspective I would probably tell myself, as we've just mentioned there, if I could change what happened in the time in between, certainly just to check in more with with friends and make sure that they're doing okay. Because as I alluded to previously, you don't realise how many moving parts there are when you're going through those early adult years. You know, you've got friends who, who are moving all over the country for university and I just presumed at that point, well, they'll all be fine. And it's kind of like an out of sight, out of mind thing as well. It's like they're that far away. I mean, they can't possibly be. They'll have met mates at uni. They've done all these things. And realistically, sometimes they might have just been wanting to hear that familiar voice from home. And yeah, and and also, I think in terms of what it's taught me, it's probably taught me that I can actually maybe juggle quite a few things at once. But it's also taught me the importance of having like a work-life balance and things like that. Having moved down to London, I was doing like 60-hour weeks for a while, six days a week, basically. But with the business doing quite well, touch wood, we've been able to bring on a third writer for the staff, a third part-time writer. That means I now have the two days off a week like normal people do. And that means me and Jordan are able to do more things together. And it reduces the stress on me generally. And that has just helped enormously. There's uh, no denying that. And yeah, I think more generally, most problems, they have something that you can do, be it a course of action or somebody that you can speak to who can rationalize everything. And that applies both to your professional life. You know, if you're having doubts about something, speak to somebody who will give you some good advice on it. And it also applies to personal life too. Never be afraid to ask for a second opinion, because I've certainly had a lot of those when I was making tough decisions about where to go, whether to move, whether to start the new job, whether to do that kind of thing. But yeah, as I say, I just feel really, really fortunate. Fortunate to have had loving family and and parents. Fortunate to have great groups of friends and now fortunate to have an amazing girlfriend who's teaching me new things every day about how to deal with mental health. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Ollie, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? Good. I would say good. I know that that's a, a one-word answer, but yeah, it's good. In a good On a scale out of 10? Eight. The only two demerit points are because of like some odd problems we've had with the flat moving in. That's literally it. Good enough. What age were you when you became self-aware about your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? 18. I was 18. Was it a eureka moment or something gradual? It was, to be honest, it was a, it was a breakup. Like everything in my life had gone quite well up until that point. 
and I thought that I was building something with my partner at that time. And then all of a sudden everything came crashing down. I was like, why am I at this university? Why am I still living at home? It was a bit of an existential crisis. And then building on that, what was the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? What impact did it have? Did it feel like a big moment or a big burden had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite normal, easy, insignificant to do? It was that very same day of the breakup. And this is, you know, it was with my, my best friend, still my best friend, Nathan. I told him what had happened. I had a message and he was like, I'll be around in 20 minutes. Good luck. came around and... You know, I think my mum and dad got home from work like not long after that. I'm like, you all right? You look like you're in bits. And I was like, yeah. you know, I explained what had happened. And then it was like, right, that's it. Come on, we're going out, you know, we're going for a walk or whatever. And I was just chatting through with him all the things that I thought I'd done wrong to get into that position. And you start reflecting a little bit and you start talking about your priorities. And I'm like, what am I actually doing here? I'm never going to become a football writer. You know, it, all mm. those things, you really, really start to doubt yourself based on those things. But that was definitely the first conversation where I think I've opened up about a lot of different things. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health? So it could be, for example, things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, a particular social environment that you don't like being in. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? It's not so much a trigger in terms of a a social environment or anything like that or something that happens. But the one thing that I get worried about, as John would admit, is, is money. It's financial for me. You're from Yorkshire, so you should a little bit. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just normal. Um, (laughs) But and and I know that that's coming from a position where living at home, earning a full time wage, being able to put quite a bit aside to save, and then all of a sudden you, you're putting money down for a deposit, and rent in London, as you know, is just ridiculous, and and you see your disposable income decline. But then you know other things associated with money cash flow you know am I, am I gonna get a pay rise in however long it so yeah I would say that's the thing that uh, sometimes wears through my mind when I'm trying to get to sleep especially if it's when things are a bit tighter shall we say yeah that and watching town <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'd tell you what that's a tr- I mean that used to be a massive trigger for me when my mental health wasn't as much sorted out but now it's not as much but yeah I think when me and my dad before COVID and I think when I hadn't sorted my mental health out as much and I think town felt perhaps like more of a bigger play in my life if that makes sense like the highs were very high and the lows were very low I think it actually was a little it can be a little bit of a trigger I think it probably is for a lot of people whose mental health isn't sorted out when they kind of lose badly or something really big happens it can be I think it can be a big trigger I mean, I don't want to, to trivialise it by talking about it like this, but I think John will testify and even mates will testify that for those last few weeks of last season, when Milan were closing in on winning the first league in over a decade, I became a bit of a wreck, really, because I knew that one false step was probably going to give it to Inter. And knowing several Inter fans and my mates were just ready oh. to rip into me about it if, if that happened. And it's like, if we won, I couldn't celebrate it because we'd just done our job for that week. And we had to wait for a slip-up that never never really came. And then that week up until the last game of the season when we needed to, to draw to win the league, every single night without fail, I would have dreams about the game oh. going a different way. And as I say, I don't want to trivialise it because football is not the be-all and end-all or anything. But I think that's where like my professional life and being a football fan and being with Jordan, who's a football fan herself, and mates who were all football fans, everything just kind of came yeah. into this melting pot of like, we need to get this done, otherwise I am going to be an absolute wreck over the summer, you know, if we've bottled it. 
I remember when town went down, mate. I mean, I, that whole season, I was just quite like, not maybe not maudlin's the right word, but just a bit like, we went, I remember when we went 2 0 up once, and I was like, oh, we'll, we'll still lose 3 2. And we did. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like that sort of gallosima, but it does like leave a bit of a scar. Like, I was put off football yeah. for quite a while after that. That second Premier League season, when we won like three games all season, the football was basically a two hour inconvenience in an otherwise good day. You sort of knew what you were going for every week. You were paying to see us lose every week. That's sort of what it was. But without it, what would we do? That was kind of a, a sad realisation. Almost a humorous realisation of the state that we've got to, you know. We're relying on this and it's producing nothing but unhappiness. But here we are, we're still doing it. And then football, I suppose, is a bit like life. It reflects life in a way. You, you take the good periods with the bad periods, don't you? Because uh, the good periods are what, or the promise of better times is what keeps you coming back for more. And obviously we had last season, which regardless of the ending, was still generally a, a really, really good and, and fun time to be supporting the club again. Mm. Outside of football then, or including it, what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health in your life and help you feel better? Which ones have worked? I mean, which ones that you've tried but haven't? Definitely the gym has helped. I'm not a huge gym goer in the sense that like I'm, you know, like calorie counting and protein and all that stuff. But I like to go and do an hour, maybe three times a week before I start work. And it's not just about necessarily looking better or trying to lose weight or anything like that. For me, it's about the endorphins that you get from it that then allow you to go into the working day feeling instantly more productive and ready to take on whatever comes it feels so much different rolling out of bed sort of 30 minutes before you're gonna log on and then you just kind of sit there with a very strong coffee and you just sort of get to doing it so going to the gym does help me definitely and other things as mentioned before i managed to kind of get my working arrangement now in a way where i've got more time off and that has made a huge difference because when you're feeling like you've got to cram everything into that one day off a week, as I was before, it all became quite intense and it was tough and you feel like you've got to make the most out of every bit of free time that you've got, whereas now things are a lot more relaxed and that's good. Uh, in terms of things that haven't helped, you know what, I, I can't think of much. I've perhaps realised over the years, and this is going back a few years to, as I mentioned, with like the breakups and stuff like that, you can't drink away your problems. That's one thing. You think that if, you, if you've had a rough week or whatever, you can just go to the pub a few pints and, and everything will be fine, but you wake up and they're still there the next day. But just more generally speaking, the company of friends definitely definitely has helped. But yeah, still learning. That's I think that's the main thing. Still learning, even though I'll be 26 in a couple of weeks. These are still formative years, in my opinion. What's the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. That is a good question. Oh, this is really random, but I read it I read it recently. And in a weird way, it has helped my outlook. But I read uh, Brian Cox's book, Human Universe. Oh, yeah. This would probably be the weirdest answer you've had to this question. <laughs> I've had a few ones. <laughs> Yeah, it it goes through an entire chapter basically talking about how insignificant we are, you know, in the scheme of things. We're very finite, we're made up of bits of, like us as humans, we're made up of bits of carbon that have come from stars and planets and it's a complete fluke that one cell merged into another, evolved in the sea and like here we are and there may or may not be life in other galaxies. We may be alone, both things are equally terrifying, but just the idea that, yeah, we are ridiculously insignificant. 
and that then makes your problems feel even more insignificant in a weird way. It's all it all becomes relative. Then it's like uh, I was meant to write something for work today, but I I didn't do it because Brian Cox says that actually it wouldn't have mattered anyway. So <laughs> not sure you can do that with every bit of work, mate. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but that no that that was just an interesting one. It it, it was a bit mind blowing. As I say, it was kind of like inspiring and terrifying in equal measure, mm. but it's something that has completely changed my perspective on certain stuff. And as a final question, and this is a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it? I think, as we kind of alluded to earlier, I think the subliminal can help. It might not necessarily be going to each of your mates and saying, I'm here if you need to talk to me about anything, because that can be kind of standoffish, as you know, as if to say, I'm here if you need me. But through the mainstream, getting the word out there more and more that talking to each other is a good thing. You don't need to talk to each other about issues all the time either. You can have conversations, normal conversations, and the positive feeling that you get from that, especially after we've come out of COVID, is something that, as I said, it can't be replicated by a video call. You know, sometimes having those conversations in person is, is enough to uplift you for the rest of the day. So, yeah, the mainstream thing about getting it into everyone's head, not just lads, that um, that talking to each other is important and then hoping that the action then follows that. I've been like, well, I've learned that talking is important, so hopefully my mate has too. And then next thing you know, you, you've started a conversation and you might go into talking about something a bit deeper or you might not. Either way, it's, it's a conversation that, that will improve your outlook on things. And on that note, Ollie Fisher, thank you so much, mate, for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. Thank you very much. been a pleasure. Sorry for rambling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Ollie for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Spread the word about Vent and the podcast. If you're feeling generous, drop us a rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And you can support us on Patreon if you like what we're doing here at Vent. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Thank you.